Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today it's part two of the Gospel of John, chapter nine. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Through Him, through Jesus, all things were made. This is a recreation. This is a new man with mud and saliva on his eyes. In Genesis, we get a creation account in Genesis 1. Then did you ever notice there's a recreation account in Genesis 2? There's two creation stories. In Genesis 2, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven, when there was no plant of the field that was yet the earth, no herb, nothing had sprung up. The Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Adam, from the dust of the ground, God formed him with this water that was there. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. You've got this water and this dust, and and the Lord God, the potter, the master potter, is forming the clay. God formed man from the dust of the ground, from the dust of the ground, God formed him. And then God himself breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life. That's what scripture says. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the man became a living being. Now we notice that God did not breathe into the animals. The animals were created on the same day as man, day six. But God did not breathe into their nostrils, only into man. Man is above. Man is king of creation over the animals. He has dominion over them. God did not breathe into the nostrils of the animals. So I'm sorry, Fido does not have a soul. As much as you love him, God did not breathe into him like he did to you. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I like this depiction because I see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the whole Trinity breathing into him. The breath of life, his soul. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man he had formed Out of the ground, the Lord God made grow every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now God formed Adam's body out of the earth, out of the dust. And God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of his own divine life. Because he wanted to share his life with man. It's the first sentence in the catechism. And man gets a body and a soul. The breath of God is his soul, and he gets a body. But they're not two different things, and this is so important to understand. Catechism 365, the unity of soul and body is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body. Not two natures united, but rather their union forms a single nature. And by death, the soul is separated from the body. That's why we're so scared to die. It's not natural. They're always together. They're one thing. And at death, they separate. The soul is separated from the body. But in the resurrection, God will give incorruptible life to our body, transformed by reunion with our soul. 
That's why we say we look forward to the resurrection of the body. Because we're going to get our soul reunited. Adam was created from water and dust. And now because of sin, Adam or mankind will have to know death. They will have to know death. St. Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. Now we have to know death. We have to. The curse is that our bodies are going to go back down into the earth and return to dust. It says it right there in Genesis, the curse of Adam. You will return to the ground, for out of it you were taken your dust, and unto dust you will return. That's the curse. That scares us. Our soul's going to separate from our body. We say it on, on Ash Wednesday. Remember, man, that you are dust, and unto dust you shall return. Don't go to the other line that doesn't say that. Go to that line. <laughs> Because that's what we need to know. We're dust. And we're going to return to dust. Our soul separates from our body at death. That's why we hate death. We're scared of it. Our body goes down into the earth and eventually decays and turns back into dust. And everybody walks away. And our life on earth is over. And we turn back into dust. And that's it. That's it. Right? No, that used to be it. That's what it was until he came and made a new creation and recreated us. He's the new Adam. He's the firstborn son of a new creation. That's why we have hope, Catholics. That's why we say that every single Sunday at Mass and everyone just rambles through it and doesn't even know what it means. That used to be it. Used to be very dismal. That was it. Until Jesus Christ ushered in the Father's greatest blessing and reversed the greatest curse known to man. He reversed it. The new Adam, Jesus Christ, conquered sin on the cross. He crushed it. And then when he rose from the dead, the new Adam conquers death and he busts through the grave, destroys death. Oh, death, where's your sting now? That's what Paul says. The curse, the ultimate curse is turned into a blessing. Death that used to separate us from God is now the only way we can get back to God. We got to die. That's the avenue to get back to the Trinity. Death is good now. See how much hope? You can't get back to the fullness of God and the perfection of his love unless you die. It's our avenue back to God. So now, to die is to live. That's what Paul says to the Philippians. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. If I live, great. If I die, great. I want to be with God. Your body's not going to stay trapped in a grave anymore. One day, your body and your soul are going to be reunited as one again in a new creation. People might not recognize you. Your glorified body will be so beautiful they didn't recognize Christ several times. Jesus reversed the curse of sin and death that began with Adam. So no more curse. He wiped it out, canceled it. Debt paid in full. Blessing, ultimate but when the Son of Man comes again in glory and all his angels are with him, he's going to sit on his throne of glory and all the nations are going to be gathered before him and he's going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He's going to put sheep on his right and goats on his left. Do you want to be a sheep or a goat? Yes. Good. Go to the sheep line. Go to the sheep line. Don't get in with the goats. You're going to be judged on your works. 
Yeah. Remember those works he said? We're going to do works while the light's still here. You're going to be judged on your works. They said, but Lord, uh, I'm in the sheep line, but when did I help you? When did I know you? Oh, remember when you, you, I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. Remember when I was hungry? Remember in prison when you came to visit me? Remember all those corporal acts of mercy that you did? I remember those. And the other side is saying, but Lord, you didn't give me any food. You didn't give me water. You didn't do anything. You sat on your you didn't do a darn thing to eternal hellfire with the damned and the gnashing of teeth. So eternal life or eternal death in one type of body or another, we must work the works of him who sent us while it's day, while we have breath, while we're alive. Night's coming when we won't be able to work anymore. So there will be a final judgment. And some will go up and some will go down. Your body and soul, are, bodies are going to be cracking through the earth. Some are going to go up, some are sheep, some are going to go down with the goats. It's going to be an amazing day, the day of the Lord. Who can abide the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire. Grotesque bodies for all eternity, for those separated from God. Read Dante's Inferno. See what those bodies look like for all eternity. Grotesque bodies, unglorified bodies, but always together with their soul forever. Or a glorified body swept up into the perfection of love. Which do you want to be? Crazy, isn't it? It's bizarre. It's so crazy. Yes, I'm crazy. I believe it. It's the crux of our faith. It's everything. This is what he told us. This is why he came. And Job knew this. One of the first books of the Bible in the Old Testament, and he knew. And the Lord comes to Job's friends, and he says, My wrath is kindled against you, and against you two friends. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And the Lord restored the fortune of Job, and Job even prayed for his friends that were so terrible to him. He prayed for them, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. He blessed him double, twofold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He did have 7,000 sheep that he lost. Now he has 14,000. He had 3,000 camels. Now he has 6,000. He had 500 yoke of oxen. Now he has 1,000. He has 1,000 donkeys when he only had 500 before. Double, 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 double. So then the Lord said he doubled everything. But I see that he only has seven sons and three daughters still. Wait, that's what he had before. Shouldn't he have 14 and 6? He does, because those other ones are eternally alive in heaven, forever. Most people don't catch that. He knows his Redeemer lives. They're eternally alive. He doesn't need ten more. They've made it there already. They beat him to heaven. Those ten children are eternally alive, proof of the resurrection of the body one day. Now, after this, Job lived to be 140 years old. He saw his children, his children's children, to four generations. He died old, happy, and full of days. Now, Adam was supposed to live forever. Forever. He was never supposed to die. He was immortal and corruptible. And in Genesis 5, we see that Adam lived for 930 years. That's pretty good. (laughs) But then he died. He got 930 years. But do you know what the Jewish sages write? They explained that Adam should have lived a complete millennium. He should have lived 1,000 years. They write that he willingly, Adam willingly gave up 70 years of his life to someone who would use them to reverse the death sentence. 
the death sentence that Adam had introduced to mankind. Who got those 70 years? Huh. Who could that have been? Who got 70 years? The Jews already figured it out. They say Adam prophetically gave those 70 years, allocated, he sacrificed 70 years of his own life so that person would live, and they say that person is King David. King David lived to be 70 years old. The scion of the Masonic line that would usher in the end of time. But guess what? I don't think it's David. Because 1,000, one millennium after David, someone else came. A Messiah, a Mashiach, the true King of Kings, the true Lord of Lords. Not so fast, Jews. I don't think you figured it out right. I think Jesus is the 70 years that Adam got. Jesus is born. Paul says it's the fullness of time. True light from true light enters the world, and that's when we start time. Everything else, before Christ or after Christ, our whole time is centered on him. Everything. He's the final prophet. So to say he comes at the beginning of time, zero. At age 30, he enters his priesthood when he's baptized by John in the River Jordan. He had to be 30 to be a priest. He's crowned a king at age 33. The unbelieving new Moses generation was mercifully graced an extra 40 years to figure everything out. I give you an extra 40 years to look at all the prophecies, see all the fulfillments. I pour the Holy Spirit on you. You're going to get... All that time, in 70, in year 70, from 0 to 70, in 70, the temple's destroyed. You either figured it out or you didn't. No temple, no more Levitical priesthood, no more animal sacrifices. You're done. Can't do Torah now. There's no temple. 70 years. I think Adam gave his 70 to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Adam, for giving the new Adam Jesus, priest, prophet, and king, your 70 years to reverse the curse. So, the neighbors show a type of blindness. And they keep asking the man, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and he spread it on my eyes and he said to me, go wash in, the, in, in Salome. And I went and I washed and I got my sight back. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I, I, I do not know. Where's Jesus? Poof, where'd he go? He just did this, where is he? No one sees Jesus. So he is really like God. He's invisible. Is he invisible? They can't see him. There's a new blindness here. They can't see him. God has always been invisible to his people. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. To Timothy, the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Moses, by faith, left Egypt, unafraid of the king's anger. He persevered as though he saw him who is invisible. They said to him, where is he? Is he invisible? Where is he? I don't know where. They're blind. Now, another type of blindness we see is the Pharisees, a, a glaring blindness. They brought the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. It was a Sabbath day, and Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. The Pharisees also began to ask him, the blind man, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. And some of the Pharisees said, well, this man is not from God. He does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, but how can a man who is such a sinner perform these signs? They were divided. The Pharisees are divided. Some are starting to think maybe. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the once blind man said, well, he, he is a prophet. And the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and that he had received his sight. Until 
they called his parents of the man who had received his sight and they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How is it then that he now sees? And his parents answered, oh, well, uh, 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 well, uh, we don't know. We, we don't know. Uh, um, we know. We know this is our son. We know he was born blind, but, but we do not know how it is that he can see now. We do not know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. Let him speak for himself. That's what the mother says. Why would she say that? Why do the parents say this? Scripture tells us his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, very afraid. The Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That means excommunicated. That means cut off. That means no business, no help, no friends, no nothing. Out. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they call the man who had been born blind and they say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Hmm. We're going to see just how blind they are because they tell him to give glory to God and that's exactly what he's doing. He's magnifying God. They are the blind ones. They don't see it. In Matthew 13, Jesus has a whole skating chapter against the Pharisees. Three times he calls them blind. Woe to you blind guides, you blind fools. How blind you are. Blind, 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 you Pharisees. The blind man said to the Pharisees, I don't know whether he is a sinner. Notice how he's not going to make any judgments. Right or wrong, he doesn't judge people. I don't know whether he's a sinner. One thing I know is that I was blind and now I see. And they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already and you would not listen. And why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? And then they reviled him and they said, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses and we know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. And you're trying to teach us righteous, sin-free men. (laughs) And they drove him out. You see the hypocrisy. It is so thick. They're so blind. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe the son of man? And he answered, and who is he, sir? Tell me so that I might believe him. And Jesus said to him, you have seen him with your own eyes. We're looking at each other. He is speaking with you. The one speaking with you is he. I am the son of man. And you can see me. You can see. And and, and it's that Job thing again. With my eyes, I will see God. And he's seeing him face to face, eye to eyeball. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into the world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him say this and they said, surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, 
your sin remains. They are so stubborn. They will not believe him. They refuse to believe him. They are so blind. Now, there was another blind Pharisee in the Bible, and he had to go defend his life. He is going to be killed, and he's standing before King Herod Agrippa, and you know how nice the Herod boys are. (laughs) And Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and began to defend himself. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews because you are especially familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. It's going to take a little time for him to lay this out. It's not a sound bite. All the Jews know my way of life from my youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people in Jerusalem. They have known for a long time. If they are willing to testify that I have belonged to the strictest sect of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise God made to our ancestors, a promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, your excellency, that I am accused by the Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? What's the hope? That God raises the dead. Indeed, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things against the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is what I did in Jerusalem with authority received from the chief priest. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, but I cast my vote against them when they were being condemned to death. I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And since I was so furiously enraged at them, I pursued them even to foreign cities. With this in mind, I was traveling to Damascus when the authority and the commission of the chief priests, they were with me, and it was midday along the road, your excellency. And I saw light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and my companions. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And I asked, who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you to serve and to testify to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith with me. So Jesus came both for righteous people like Job and the blind man today, and he came for sinners like Paul. Job was righteous. The man born blind was righteous. Saul was a sinner. One thing we all have in common, original sin. We're born with it, all except for Mary, by a singular act of God's grace. But Jesus wants both saints and sinners, so both, so all of us can glorify God, that we might magnify God, the Savior of all mankind. And when a sinner repents, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. God loves sinners. He came for sinners. He came to set captives free. St. Paul appealed to King Herod Agrippa to believe in Jesus as his Messiah. And as he's making his defense, the Roman governor is also there, Festus. And he says, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. (laughs) 
Too much learning is driving you insane. They don't believe people rise from the dead. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking the sober truth. Indeed, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak freely. For I am certain that none of these things have escaped his notice, for they were not done in a corner. King Herod Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Paul, are you so quickly persuading me, Paul, to become a Christian? Paul replied, whether quickly or not, I pray to God that not only you, but also all those who are listening to me today might become such as I am except for these chains. Then the king got up with him, the governor, Festus and Bernice, his wife, and those who had been seated with them. And as they were leaving, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, too bad, this guy could have been set free if he would have not appealed to the emperor. But God had a different plan. God wanted him to go to Rome. God wanted the gospel spread further. So last thing, this blind, sinful Pharisee, Paul, blind, 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 persecuting Christians, dragging them in, women, children, in chains to be killed. He stood at the feet of St. Stephen, ordered the death. He now, who's so blind, is now blinded by God. Pitch black, pitch black. He who was blind is now really blind. And while he's really blind in that three day, he figures it out. He understands God is the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And then he's washed clean by Ananias with living water and he's baptized with the breath of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in baptism. That living water that set him free, making him a new creation, a new man. This final prison cell in Rome. You can go there, you can go down there. And while he was being held there, being waiting for execution, he, there's two guards that he preaches the gospel to and they want to become Christians. They want to be baptized and all of a sudden a miraculous spring bubbles up from the floor, living water, and Paul can baptize them before he's killed. Peter's down there too. Same holding cell, they're together. That's why the backwards cross, because Peter died on an upside-down cross. That living water bubbled through the floor so Paul could baptize soldiers right up to his final breath. And tradition tells us that when Paul's head was sliced off, it bounced three times, and every place it bounced, a living spring of water bubbled up. Every bounce of his head, three, Trinity, the divine number, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this blind man today and what you wanted to teach us about mud and water and a new creation that you want to make in each of us. I pray for each and every person here. You say that you can make all things new again. You can take dead marriages and resurrect them. We've seen it. You can take children that are so far gone and you can resurrect them. You can breathe new life into our loved ones, into our neighbors, into our spouses, and into ourselves. Help me not be blind. You can breathe new life into me, Jesus Christ, because you are God for no reason other than you are God. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
That was part two of the Gospel of John, chapter nine, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.